Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. Man, just so grateful for my family. So grateful that I get to preach today. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for letting me preach today. Able to share the word of God. It's such an honor. And, um, man, I get the, um, the privilege to oversee our whole dream team. And uh, we have an incredible, incredible dream team. And they serve God wholeheartedly. And it, it looks like when, in, you know, and it's, it's in a testament to God's grace, but also to our dream team. When you guys come here, it's smooth and it's life-giving. It's not by accident. We have people that are coming here every single Sunday early, prepping coffee, making sure that our kids' classrooms look excellent, that, that they're clean for our parents. And so I just want to say, Dream Team, you guys are killing it. We love you guys so much. And, um, man, like, if you're not part of the Dream Team, you got to get involved. That's a shameless plug, all right? So um, no shame for me there. We have an amazing Dream Team. So you guys ready to jump into God's Word? We started an incredible series last week called The Problem of God. No, that is not a typo. Um, that is serious. And here's why. Because if we're being completely honest, um, we've had doubts um, towards God. We've had doubts towards our faith. And maybe you're still in that moment where you're just not sure. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you call yourself spiritual. Maybe you're just like, dude, I don't even want anything to do with God. We want to say welcome home. That's totally okay. Because uh, we just believe that, man, doubts, um, if you're sincerely um, pursuing truth, that can be a catalyst for something huge in your life. So you're welcome here in that area. And maybe you're a Christ follower. It's like, gosh, I just, I get the what, but I just don't get the why. And if someone were to ask me about this, this, and that, I don't know. I have great feelings and emotions. And I have a relationship with God, but I just don't have the actual evidence. And so um, I want to talk to us today about that if we can. And really, not just from an intellectual point of view, but I've just been praying that God would light our hearts on fire for him that we would love him with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and we don't have to choose one or the other. Amen? You ever had a situation where you've really enjoyed something from the past? Like, you just had that nostalgia moment, and you wish you could bring it back to now, but it just wouldn't make any sense. Let me give you an example. My first phone was um, a Nokia phone. <laughs> what do you guys know about that Nokia, right? Awesome, awesome phone. And I love how it's made because... It fits so snug in your hand, and the buttons were just so close together. <laughs> Who here had texting battles with a Nokia? Anybody? They were so small and tiny, you know, you could go do, do, like, on your hand. It was incredible, right? I know me and my friends, right, we'd go behind our backs. We'd just do all crazy things, right? And there's some people, man, they would literally go five fingers like this. I'm like, who are you? But I was so jealous, though, when they were doing that. And so the Nokia was so nice, and then, come on. When you're with your parents and you have the dental office, you got like an hour to go, what are you going to do? Snake. You guys know, right? Snake was the game, right? It's like, man, you can play your Call of Duty, play all those fancy video games, give me Snake. And I'm solid all day, every day. I'm a simple, simple man. Now, could you imagine if I were to go to I, my, my service is AT&T, and I go to, we're to go to AT&T office, you know, hey, so, man, I know you have iPhones. I know you have all these amazing, you know, phones. Can you get my Nokia to work? Like, I know it's old. I know it's outdated. Can you? They'd be looking at me like, no, you're crazy. Why would you even, like, could you imagine if I try to open up my Facebook on, like, my Nokia? It'd probably just blow up in my face, right? It just couldn't even handle it. 
maybe even in a situation where, I know this might be outdated for some of us, but does anyone remember what a Hollywood video is? Anyone know what a blockbuster video is? Man, I had like a, I had a very thrilling yet agonizing relationship with those places. And here's why. Because there was something when you would go to a store and you see all the movies, right, on display. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. But then the moment of truth happens. When you walk up to the video, right, and what do you do? You look behind it. No, the box isn't there. It was horrible. They get you when you pay, you get your pass. It's like, seriously? Now, as, as nostalgic as I am about uh, Hollywood video, I don't want no Hollywood video. I don't need Hollywood video. Why? Because if I don't have it there, I can go to Amazon Video. I can go to Netflix. I can go to Google Play, right? It just wouldn't make any sense to go back. Why, does, why, why is Pastor Chris talking about this? What does that have to do with the problem of God? Hey, I think, you know, we should have fun in church. That's one reason. But two, some of us, I think, sometimes can make the Bible feel that way as well. Where the Bible can feel very nostalgic, right? Oh, great stories, great emotions, but just not great history. It just doesn't really, just doesn't really make any sense. And I think sometimes when we look at the Bible, it can just feel so outdated. It just doesn't feel relevant. It doesn't feel like it's very practical to my life. And I'm talking to everybody in this room. Um, not just a skeptic, but even believers where it's like, what is the point? Why does Pastor Matt keep talking about the Bible? Like, why can't, I mean, why can't we just get away from it? And I think sometimes we can just feel that way. And there's almost a pressure from our culture. The Bible is just irrelevant. And I would even say, yes, I think there's a part of our culture that is just totally against it. But I think a majority of the culture is like, I just don't see the point. And even us as Christians sometimes, where it's like, man, I know I should get in my Bible. I know that I should love my Bible. I know I should just give it at least a couple minutes a day, but I just can't, I just can't get there. And, and maybe you've been in situations like where you love the Bible, and someone's like, hey, so this Bible thing, where did it come from? You're like, Amazon? I don't know. You know, <laughs> like, where did it come from? Hey, so prove to me that the Bible is really the Bible. You're like, your mama, they run away. Like, you just don't, like, what, what do you do in those moments? I remember when I was, uh, when I was 20 years old, I worked at Home Depot. And uh, that just goes to show, if someone like me can work at Home Depot, anybody can. Because I know nothing about tools, right? Like, I am the worst of the worst. And so, I remember working at Home Depot, and I was on fire for Jesus. I was sharing my faith. I was inviting people to church. And there was this one person that were kind of similar ages. And he was just that person who just loved to poke fun. And, and the worst part was he was super smart, like just like way too smart. So I would, you know, hey, come to church. Hey, Chris, what do you know about the Bible? I'm like, I, I know a couple verses. I mean, like, what are you trying to ask me? He went, went on to tell me 50, diff, literally 50 different reasons why my Bible um, wasn't really the Bible. And he's like, you know, this whole thing about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, that's not just for Christianity. There's many stories just like that. You can compare that to mythology. You can compare that to all these generations of cultures. It's pretty much the same thing. And I wasn't shaken in my faith per se, but I was just shaken emotionally. Like, what do I say right now? Like, I just felt like I just, and then I walked away from like, did I displease God in that moment? Was I ashamed of my faith? How do I stick by my faith? And so I think some of us in these moments can feel like, man, what am I supposed to do 
when people are talking about my faith and I don't have anything to say back. You know, one of my biggest struggles this week um, was how do I deliver why the Bible is reliable, powerful, personable, and really culturally relevant in 35 minutes? How's that even possible? It's not possible. But what I, what I do want to do is I want to remove common barriers that a lot of us face um, when it comes to understanding the Bible. But not just remove barriers. I want to fan a flame in your heart by the Holy Spirit that you would know that the, the, the reason why we have the Bible is not just based on our emotions, that we have proven facts, facts that the Bible is what it says it is, God's word. Did you know that the first people to doubt um, Christianity were the disciples. Did you know that? So Jesus um, was crucified. He, he, he had risen. And then some of the disciples were walking from Emmaus. Jesus walks by, and uh, they doubted him so much, they didn't even recognize his appearance that he was Jesus. And so um, what the disciples said was this. Can we pull it up in Luke? It's coming. Pretty much it says, you foolish people, you find it hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. So the disciples doubted that Jesus had risen. And what did Jesus say? You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all of the prophets, which is the Old Testament word for the scriptures, you doubted the, the, the prophets, that they said what they said. So what did Jesus do? He didn't cast them out. He didn't say, get out of here. He started to walk with them. And he started explaining the word of God over and over and over. And then when they were having dinner together, the scripture says their eyes were open, and then Jesus vanished. And then they said to one another, didn't your hearts burn within you when Jesus was talking about the scriptures? That's my goal today, is that not only that your doubts would be removed, but that God would fill you with the heart for his word. And not just for the book itself, but for the author behind the word as well. So some of the things I want to help answer, and I'm kind of skipping slides, so if we can go back, Steph, I'm, I'm kind of making it hard for you, I'm sorry. Some of us ask the question, um, hasn't the Bible been proven false? It's kind of a blanket statement, right? Like, hasn't the Bible been proven false? And again, when we give questions to people, we don't do it in a rude way. We do it with gentleness and with respect. But I would always say back, hey, no, totally understand what part of the Bible has been proven false. Because sometimes it's just, it's been proven false. Which part? I'll get back to you. I'm going to Google that, and I'll be right back, okay? Sometimes another question is this, is that isn't there contradictions in the Bible? Very, very popular myth, and I want to help dispel that as well. Another one is that isn't the gospel full of inserted myths? This whole God thing, Daniel and, and, and the lion's den, David and Goliath, even the person of Jesus. Isn't he just a myth? We'll find out. And the last question is, um, isn't the Bible culturally irrelevant? Um, that shows you that I know my notes. Praise God. Um, <laughs> isn't the Bible culturally irrelevant? So let's dive in, okay? So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. And really what I want to talk about is the groundwork of what makes the Bible the Bible. Why it's not, it's more than a Harry Potter book. Um, it's more than a history textbook that you read. But it really is God's word and that it's the word inspired, okay. So 
Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every uh, good work. Say to your neighbor, breathed out by God. Hopefully you had good breath when you said that to your neighbor. And so when the scriptures say, and some translations say, I'm sorry, not just breathed out, but inspired. I'm reading from the ESV in this one because I think it's a little bit more clear. But it's the word inspiration. All scripture is inspired. Now, when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking in the sense where um, of, the, of, of the underdog, like Rudy from the movies. Or like Rocky, right? Man, we're just so inspired by that story. Inspired in this passage doesn't mean inspiration as in like an underdog. It means that it's literally breathed out by God. So what makes the scripture so unique than any other book is not the words of man, but the words of God himself. Now, if we're being completely honest with ourselves, how is that even possible? Like, come on. Like, the word Bible, the original word is biblia, and it means books. So believe it or not, the, the Bible that you have in your hands right now or on your phone right now, it just wasn't delivered as one single book. It's a compilation of over 66 books that have been preserved over the years. And I'm going to talk about that too because even if we have the words of God, that's one fact. But if it hasn't been preserved right, it doesn't matter at all. So we got to have inspiration and we have to have the transmission, the actual preservations of the text. Stay with me, okay? And we're going we're gonna to bring it all together. So inspiration is so important of how we understand God's word because if we don't treat it as God's word, we're going to treat it as just as really good um, proverbs or really good ideas. But no, this is God's word coming to us. So you might be asking the question, well then, it was written by people. So is it all God that wrote it? Is it all people? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's look at Second Peter chapter 2. It says this. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. Now, that part is huge. Because that, what that passage is saying is that even though God was the divine um, beginning, he's the origin of where the Scriptures came from, he uniquely used the authors, their personalities, and how they would write the scriptures. So pretty much what God was saying is, this is my word, and I want you to write the way that you would write it from your personality, but it still comes from me. I'm still saying, and by it, that's still my words, but yet the authors is written from their own perspectives. And you can tell us in the Gospels. Um, Matthew was um, Jewish, and he's also um, a tax collector. And so when you read um, the book of Matthew, you see you see um, out of all the Gospels, the most um, Jewish prophecies being fulfilled. Why? Because the prophecies in the Old Testament would have been so important, so, so important to the Jewish people that we can see that, wow, Matthew, he wrote from his own unique personality, but it was also God who authored it at the same time. And so I'm going to bring this all together. So the first part of understanding um, God's word is that it was inspiration, okay? And this is how I would define inspiration, is that Spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words 
which are divinely authoritative. Spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words, which are divinely authoritative. If you want more um, information on this, I totally recommend reading the book From God to Us from Norman Geisler. That's his definition, and I just couldn't have said it better than him. But spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words, which are divinely authoritative. And all these points are very, very important is that these men had to be moved by God, because if it wasn't moved, then it would be from us, and it had to be God who was breathing um, onto those words, which would make it his, and then they are divinely authoritative. And here's why we're talking about this, is that if God's word isn't God's word, then it's just really good ideas, but it doesn't have moral authority over our lives. And remember last week we talked about how do we know God exists? There's many plausible arguments, but one of the biggest ones is that we have a moral compass within. Is that you just can't say that's wrong and that's right without it being inside of you. The moment that you say, you can't steal my iPod, yes I can. Because what's true for you is true for you, and I like your iPod. And I'm going to take that. And so that moral compass within shows that there are laws that are just in our hearts. But if there's laws that didn't come from us, that must mean there's a law giver. And if it's a law giver, then this is where we see the words of God. And here's the part that I want to lean to. Don't miss this. Is that if we don't embrace the authority of Scripture, we're going to miss out on the power of Scripture. Is that if we don't see God's word as God's word, then we're going to miss out on the power. Because here's what I read in Genesis. That when God speaks, life happens. God is the only one that can speak. Speak things into existence that didn't already exist. It's, the scriptures say that when God speaks, the mountains part, the sea responds, the whole earth um, shakes at God's voice. And so if we don't understand the value, the promise of God's word, then we're going to miss out on the power of it. So I want us to really open our hearts to embrace the authority of the Bible so we won't, we won't miss the power of it. So that's the inspiration part that we can't lose, that the word of God is inspired. But I also want to use another technical term, which is also important, is that the Bible is also inerrant. Okay? So let me, let me define what inerrancy is. Inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error or fault in its original teaching. Okay? It is without error and fault in its original teaching. So it's the belief that oh, not only that God's word is his word because it was inspired by him, but that over the years it was preserved, it was carried until that we have right now. And this is probably um, outside of the culture, um, if it's relevant or not, it's probably the biggest attack that we have on the scriptures right now is that is the Bible inerrant? Now, you maybe probably have never woken up, most of us, like, I wonder if the Bible's inerrant. Wait, what does inerrancy mean again? Like, like, what does that even mean? And this is why it's so important. Because if the Bible has errors in it, then it can't be God's word. It's got to be perfect. But here's the thing that I want to help us define is what is perfect. What is actual perfection in God's word? And I don't know if you're familiar with the website Reddit. Um, but Reddit is actually um, a big um, ground for a lot of atheists that actually gather together 
and they will form arguments all the time why the scriptures are not the scriptures, um, why the Bible is not the Bible, why Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why Jesus is a myth. And the problem with that is that anybody in their garage and fill their pages at 4 p.m. Um, drinking cereal um, can write whatever they want. And just because it's on the Internet, we just assume that it's true. Um, but it's not. And, um, and we can prove that. And one of the biggest, and you probably have heard of him, is that he um, was a Christian. I say was for a reason. And his name is Bart Ehrman. He is a professor at, in, in North Carolina. And he wrote a book in 2007, uh, 2003 called Misquoting Jesus. Now, he has a Ph.D. in textual criticism. Textual criticism is how when we look at the Bible and we make sure that everything that it says, it actually says that, and there's no errors in it. And so he is with an amazing group of people, amazing group of scholars, and in his church growing up, he was taught that biblical inerrancy means that there is not one single error in the scriptures. As in, like, every period was in the right spot, that if there was an I, that the, the, uh, the, it, every I would be dotted, every T would be crossed, that everything was literally perfect. And so he wrote this book called Misquoting Jesus, and you can, and, and you can read it. Um, there's, there's a lot of errors into it, and so we're not afraid of it. But here's the crazy part, is that there has been thousands upon thousands of books written about why the Bible is legit. One book comes out about how it's not true at all, and it rose to the New York Times bestsellers within a week. It's crazy, right? And so people who have no idea, no baseline knowledge of what the scriptures are, oh my gosh, like nobody knew about, we've known about this for years. And here's what he says, is that um, when you look at the New Testament, there are over 400,000 errors in um, the letters that we have in the Bible. And if you actually look at how many words are in the New Testament, there's only 150,000 words. And it's like, wow, if that was actually true, that'd be crazy. But here's the thing. He leaves out a lot of key facts a lot of us just don't really understand. And I didn't understand until I read the book. Is that those 400,000, they're not really errors. They're what's called variants. And variance can mean a lot of things. It could mean that you missed a period somewhere. It could mean that you were trying to put a T and you just forgot to put a line in. It could be the smallest of things. And so the way that Bart Ehrman counts his 200,000 errors, you got, you got to hear this. This is going to really help you out. Is that if there was one error in one manuscript and that was copied 16 different times, so 16 manuscripts, he would count that as 16 different errors. So if you miss one period, oh, that's 16. It was crazy because if you were to, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm Bart. I'm going to put you under the fire right now. If we were to take Bart's, uh, you know, first book that he wrote, and let's just say there's about a thousand um, errors or variants in his book. He sold a million copies. How many errors would he have? He would have a lot according to his same standard. So it just, it just doesn't make any sense. And I won't go too deep into the minutia of it, but 99% of the errors, not the errors, sorry, the variants that we have in the, in the New Testament scriptures, they are the littlest of things from a T that wasn't a cross, an I that wasn't dot, a period that was missed. Maybe if, there, if the word was truth, there was an extra H at the end. That's it. And so in, in that 1% that we're just not sure about, it bears no no power over any deep theological truth at all. 
So what Bart doesn't tell us is that 99% clarity that we have exactly what the Word of God says, and even that 1% is the most minutia of things. And so when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're not talking about that every period's there, every T was crossed. We're talking about the Bible itself, the content, it's without error. It's infallible, okay? Now, I know for some of us, tell me something that makes me feel good. That should make you feel good. That the scriptures are not just alive, but we can put our faith in them, that they're accurate. And there's another thing that Bart doesn't tell us. I love you, Bart, but man, you're not telling us the whole story, okay? Is that when one of the ways that you know that an article or an ancient document is legit is by how many copies there are. Now, some of us would say, gosh, I wish we just had one New Testament copy, just one that's perfect. If you look at um, the Quran, if you look at um, uh, the Mormon Bible, they have one copy of each one. Wouldn't it be just like, wouldn't we just want it just like that? No, we wouldn't. And here's why. How do you know that that's the right copy? How do you know that's the only one? If anything, if you have more, the more copies, the better. And I'm just so, so proud to say that when you look at ancient antiquity and, and all of the documents, the most that we have, let's say, the, of the Iliad, the Odyssey, any of those, they are maybe at most 100 documents. Do you know how many, how many New Testament manuscripts we have? 25,000. Take it to the bank, church. 25,000 copies. And so the reason why we have so many variants is because we have so many copies. That's a good problem to have. And the reason why we can have such reliance and faith in it, because we have so many copies to compare, to compare. And what they say in those times is that it is virtually impossible to put a myth in when you have that many copies, because once the story is out, you can't change it from there. And so you can have faith in not just of the inspiration of the scriptures, but also of the transmission, of the preservation of it, is that we have so, so many copies and there are so many good books on this. If you, um, Lee Strobel, again, The Case for the Real Jesus, The Case for the Real Bible. Read, the, I read the student edition, and I'm 32, and, um, and that was perfect for me, okay? So if you're like, oh, I don't know, read the student edition, okay? Um, it's just as good, and it's not as um, in the clouds, because I, I need that for myself, okay? And so those are great ideas right there. And one other thing I want to say, too, and again, this is more of just the preciousness of the scriptures. The Old Testament scribes has such a deep reverence for the scriptures. Is that a lot of you know that the Jewish people, they can't even say the word God because of how much they believe how holy the word God is. And so what they would actually do before they would write their um, a script, they would actually take a bath. Come on out. And then every, amen, come on. We don't want no stinky scribes. And so before they write, they take a bath. They get out, and then right before they write God, they take a bath again. Then they write God, and they can't even put the O in there because God's too holy. And then after they write God, what do you think they did? They took a bath again because they had such a deep reverence for God's words that we had to take so care of it. So there's a scribe writing. There's two of them that are on their shoulders. Are you making sure that every word is correct? So you could be writing a document for 13 hours, but if you miss one word, get rid of it. That's not the right one. Let's get rid of it. That, that is just passion right there. 
And, and, and that's not just biblical scholars saying, those are general scholars as well. So it's not just, you know, we're just trying to find reasons to find out the Bible is real, but we can actually stand by that. So is this making sense? We're going to get it more practical, but at the same time, you guys need to know this, that the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture is not in question if you actually know what you're talking about and if you do the research, okay? So what I want to dive into next is the actual cultural relevance of the Bible. And there's things that where it's like, what do we do with this? Doesn't the Bible support slavery? Doesn't the Bible support that um, it's okay for men to be better than women? Like, is, is that, is, isn't that like what the Bible says? No, it doesn't at all. And I had the, the privilege of uh, going to Bible college um, when I was 20 years old. Um, I was a Bible college dropout. Don't judge me, okay? All right? God called me to serve in a church. I was just responding, and I didn't want to be in financial debt. But God gave me, God gave me the past. I, I, I still feel good about it. But um, one of the most, my favorite classes is called Biblical Exegesis. Exo what? what? What did you just say? Exegesis is how we look into the scriptures and see it from the right point of view. And I loved my teacher, Professor Larry Powers. He was such a passionate heartfelt. He just loved the word of God. And he was a screamer as a teacher. It wasn't like, you know, let's just open up to it. Let's open the word of God, guys. He was passionate. And people kind of, you know, they loved him, but they're like, he screams. I love the screamers. If you scream at me, it means you're passionate. Probably why I'm screaming right now. I just love the screamers when they teach me the Bible. And so he has such a passion for the word of God. And there's one example that I never forgot that he taught me, or he taught the class. He's like, consider Tiger Woods. In his golf swing, how is Tiger Woods able to hit an almost near-perfect shot every single time? Anyone here, any golfers in here? Am I the, any mini-golfers in here? Come on, ah. Oh. Hey, I'm a Christian, but not when I play mini-golf. If you play mini-golf, all bets are off, all right? So just being honest there. And so when it comes to golf, he's like, if you know anything about golf, you know it is not easy. You just can't go, let's just swing the club. Man, you're going to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else in the process. It doesn't work that way. So stick to mini golf if you're not a golfer. And so what Larry was saying is, you know, when, when Tiger Woods swings, he doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to swing differently today. Today, you know, I'm going to have my arm like this. You know, I'm going to have my foot like this. Every single time, I'm going to take, put the ball right here. I'm going to have my, 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 my feet lined up. I'm going to. Go like this, I'm a boom, finish it off, right? You can see how awesome my swing is right there. Uh. And so what he's talking about is this, is that when you approach the scriptures, it's the same thing every single time. You got to take your content and you got to put it in its context. Content, context. Content, context. If you just come and try to swing at the word of God, then you're going to get something new every single time. And so if you treat it as something that is just, you know, that... It's just another book, you're going to get a different result. You have to take the content and put it in its context every single time. So that's what I want to help us do. Let's put our Bible's content in its context. And if you're feeling like, gosh, I never studied my Bible, man, I hope this stirs you on to study your Bible, go to our website. If you go to our resources, we want to be able to give you um, an acronym called REAP. It's a great acronym to help you get more out of your Bible. Don't miss out on that. And so... One of the first um, dilemmas that I want to help talk about is that isn't there a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament? 
That how come the God of the Old Testament is so full of rules? Don't get a tattoo. Don't eat that type of sushi. Don't like, you know, don't go out past 3.30. You got to, you know, it's like, what are all these rules? I like the God of the New Testament. He's so much more loving. He's so much more free. He's so much more graceful. That is a misunderstanding of the scriptures. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every time he expresses his grace, there is his holiness. And every time he expresses his holiness, his grace is prevalent right there. So you can't separate one or the other. And here's, here's the big key idea. Because, again, I don't have that much time. It's so like I go fast. But here's the idea is that in the Old Testament, God was giving specific rules to a nation. To a nation. So when he says, don't do this, don't do that, it's not because he was trying to harass them, but he knew what was best for them. And so whenever, I, just, I love to just recommend to people that whenever you see a commandment, look for the heart behind the commandment. There's always a heart behind every rule. There's always a why behind the what when God tells us to do something, and it's always for our benefit. So you have to find the heart behind the commandment. So, so someone's asked the question, well, there, all these rules that you have, how come you're, there's so many rules in the Old Testament, how come you're not doing them? And you got to read the Bible. It's in there. Jesus talks to us in Matthew chapter 5 that I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. So those things that, man, that you couldn't do, I fulfilled on the cross for you. So when we see the perfect law, man, we see our imperfections, but we also see the perfection of Christ fulfilling that in our lives. And so there are specific things where the Old Testament, yes, like the Ten Commandments, you should be following that. But there's more to it. It's not just, man, don't murder somebody, but, man, watch out for murder in your heart. Don't just, don't just not lie to somebody. Watch out for gossip in your heart. That's what Jesus is talking about. So we have to have a proper understanding that the, that the, that the Bible is a story that progresses. If you don't understand the progression, it's not going to make any sense to you. And can I say one more thing about that? is that sometimes when we think about the Bible and the rules and the commandments, instead of it something being that sets us free, it's a burden to us. And the scriptures talk right into that, where it says that the law was just meant for it to be a tutor until Christ comes. What does that mean? The law is meant to do two things. It's meant to show you how sinful you are. It's meant to show you that, man, when you compare not your standard with your wife, not your standard with your kids, not your standard to that one person that you judge all the time but you never tell them, right? The real standard is Christ. And when he's the standard, we're all on our knees as dust. But the, what the law always uh, uh, also shows us is that we need a Savior. And that Jesus came and he rescued us from the power of sin. And that when you read the Bible, you got to stop reading it like it's all about you. we got to read the Bible because it's all about Christ. That when we read the Bible, it's not about what you've done. It is about what you've done, but it's bigger than that. It's what Christ has already done for you through his death, through his resurrection, through what he's done for us through the cross. And so the Bible isn't meant to be a burden. It's, it's meant to set you free to the one who has set you three, uh, free through the cross. So I, I just had to say that. All right. So let's keep moving on. And there's a part of it, too, where it's like, man, like, it, when we look at the Gospels, isn't there this myth in there? Like, man, these disciples, didn't they just write 
so that they can gain power, right? Because anyone with any religious agenda, aren't they just trying to gain power? Now, Pastor Tim Keller from New York, he makes a really great point where he says that they do a thing called counterproductive content. What does he mean? Well, if you were writing the Bible, and if you want to show yourself as amazing, as powerful, would you write that you professed your faith in Christ, and then a second later you denied him? Would you write that? A guy named Peter did. He professed that, Christ, I will do anything. I'll die for you. And then some little girl says, hey, Peter, are you a Christian? No. And then he, well, he runs away. Would you write that about yourself? No way. If you were trying to espouse Jesus as king over everybody, that he's going to take this kingdom by force, would you write that he was in the garden all by himself praying, God, take this cup away from me? Would you write that your Savior is literally bleeding, um, sweating blood because he's taken on the sins of the world? Would you write that about a Savior that you're trying to show as powerful, as better than everybody else? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. The Bible is full of counterproductive content that if we're really trying to take over the world by force, we wouldn't be showing ourselves in such a bad light. Counterproductive content. It just doesn't make any sense. And this one I think um, you'll really enjoy as well is that, man, isn't the Bible culturally irrelevant? Like, when it talks about homosexuality, when it talks about marriage, when it talks about slavery, what's the deal? And honestly, I have a heart for this. It's like, even as, as Christians, where it's like, I know there's an answer, but what is the answer? And I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at one. When um, Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, slaves obey your masters. Now, if you look at that straight up, you're just like, okay, Paul, um, you're going to have to explain that one. Slaves obey your ma- Does that mean the Bible affirms that, that, sla- that slavery is okay? Um, and, and here's the part that I want to suggest is that just because it's in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's encouraged. It just means that it's covering it. Now, that's actually what's happening. And so we don't understand that when Paul talks about slavery in those days, it wasn't what we think about slavery nowadays. Um, what happened here in America. Back then, slavery was actually pretty popularized, um, where, man, you could, be, um, you could be popular for being a slave, that you could actually have your own business, and you can work yourself out of it. And so when Paul says to, this, um, to, the, to those slaves, obey your masters, he's not just saying, man, slavery is okay, slavery is affirmed. No, he's saying, man, you as someone who has a job, um, do it with all of your excellence, not because you're a slave, but because, man, when you're working for that, for your boss, work as though you're working for God. And so the Bible doesn't affirm slavery because we don't understand what that context meant in those times. So could you imagine if we were to read the scriptures and say, like, wow, that one thing offended me, I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to walk away. you got to put your content in the right context and to be able to understand it. And there's so many things that we could talk about, but I want to lean into this, okay? Because there's going to be times, if you haven't already read the Bible already, you're going to read it, and there's going to be some things like, I don't know, God. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm going to say that's actually a good thing. Pastor Tim Keller says this, is that if your God never, dis- never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. Let us sink in. That hurts. I got a punch to it. Oh, man. 
you hit it, Tim. And so if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping yourself. What is it saying? It's saying that there's going to be times where it's like, instead of leaning out with those hard passages, God wants you to lean in. What's your heart, God? And, and honestly, most of your breakthroughs are going to happen with those things that just don't make sense to you. But you got to ask God for his heart. God, what are you trying to say in this passage? So I'm going to close with one more thing, okay? And, and it's this. And, it's, and you probably wouldn't expect this as one way that we can affirm God's word um, for ourselves and for our culture. And it's this. And this is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It means that God's word is God's word because it speaks to us. How do I prove that? Like, how do I, and it's one of those things where it's like, when you ask somebody, hey, how did you know that you fell in love? I don't know. I just did. I, tell me, tell me, tell me like what love is and how it feels in your heart. I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say it. And, and it's with the inner testament of the Holy Spirit where when God speaks to you through his word, you just know it in your heart. And here's how we know this, is that the word of God, it has the power of life transformation. And so when we read the words of scripture and we obey it, God does something new um, in our lives. And I can attest to this because when I was 18 years old and I recommitted my life to Christ, and I'd never been discipled. I never knew that God's word could actually apply to my life. I told myself, God, I am not a reader. I don't have the personality that wants to do this. But God, if you have revealed yourself through your word, I'm going to read it. So I started reading it. I started ingesting it into my system, into my spirit. And you know what started to happen? God just started to speak to me. Where I'd walk around and I would just hear those words, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Where did that come from? It wasn't, it wasn't some spooky audible voice. It was just an inner testament of the Holy Spirit. And God's never going to speak to you something that's not in his word, that's not going to verify with his word. But he spoke that to me. Wow, God, I can't believe that you spoke that to my heart. There's these times when I'm walking around. Hey, I want you to talk to that person. They need you to encourage them. Okay, I'm so scared. I'm introverted. I don't know, Lord. I go talk to them. Exactly what they needed. I want you to know that the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, that also speaks to God's word. Because I can talk about the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. I can even talk about the relevance and the reliability of the Scriptures. But I think even then, it doesn't get real until there's the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to encourage you with, if you're skeptical, if you are unsure, if you're maybe passing toward the Word of God, the best way to overcome that hurdle is to actually step into it. Start reading the Bible. Read it every single day and let the testimony of God speak to you. And let me just say one more thing, and I'm just so encouraged by the life of Josiah. Josiah was somebody in the scriptures that we saw in the Old Testament that the word of God had been forgotten, and not just forgotten, it was lost. So Josiah sent some of his workers, I want you to go find the word of God. And when they found the word of God, when they took it out of the rubble, we have found the word of God. And what did Josiah do? He celebrated, they parted, and they read the whole word of God through the whole day. 
People were weeping. People were crying because they knew that they weren't living up to the word of God, but they knew God's word was true. And if they obey it, there was a blessing in it. And I want to encourage you, don't let your own presuppositions, your own ideas of the scriptures that aren't true to stop you from getting into God's word. Because there is a blessing, there is a power that when we see God's word as authority, we can receive the power from.